hello there and welcome to Out to Lunch, where I treat my esteemed guests to magnificent food and the conversation fair flows. My guest this week is a club DJ, broadcaster and now novelist. As you'll hear during our lunch, I put it to her that she was on the cusp of huge life changes and I wasn't wrong. Soon after our encounter, she announced to the world that she would be leaving her eponymous Radio 1 show after 17 years at the helm. So we don't discuss that, but we do talk about club culture, the threat to it from the festival circuit, digging deep to write fiction and the fear of being reviewed. Oh, I've been there. It's a romp of a chat, which is exactly what you'd expect from the great Annie McManus. Did you ever have a rider? For a while, I had a pig on it, thinking, oh, maybe like a key ring or a nice postcard no. or something. But one time in Portsmouth, someone put two live pigs in my dressing room. And were you delighted or slightly bemused? Both. Delighted and <laughs> bemused. <laughs> Hello, Annie. Hello, Jay. How are you? I'm very well. It's delightful to meet you. I've always wanted to meet you. Oh, thank you. Well, I've got a feast here and I need your help with it already because I don't know I don't know what some of the dishes are. There's something that looks like cornflakes. I'm you need to help me with this. All right. So the background, this is Out to Lunch, and diehard Out to Lunch listeners may remember an episode I did with Jesse Ware, and this is relevant, because I took Jesse Ware to the restaurant of my friend Ravinda Bogle. It's called Jaconi, and it's in Marylebone. She took me there since. Ravinda is a superb cook. I've known her for about well over a decade, and she brilliantly merges her East African heritage with lots of other flavours and just has superb taste. She really does. But she, in the current circumstances in which we all find ourselves, has set up a thing called Comfort and Joy, ah. which is her, her delivery. And that is what you've got. It's entirely vegan. I think she calls it veg with benefit. It is beautiful looking. Right. So I'll tell you what you've got. Uh, it's called the Zen Box. Globally inspired veg with benefits, I should tell you. I've done it in two sort of pools because one thing needed to be heated up. Have you put something through the oven? Yeah, yeah. I've got one bowl which has got um, silken toffee with black vinegar, mm-hmm. charred pak choy with a sesame dressing and crispy shallots, and then a tomato salad. The cornflakes is called the Jaconi mix. It's kind of Ravinda's take on a Bombay mix. And then from the warm side, and we'll get to that, is the crispy caramel aubergine with sticky garlic rice. How's that for a lunch? It's- Banging. That's what it is. I don't know if that's the right word to use, Jay, but I'm calling it banging. You come from a culture, professionally, <laughs> where the word banging... <laughs> okay, yeah, conveys... It's more music. It works for food, too. Did you get a bottle of, of apple juice I as did, well? yeah. I did, yeah. I have to pour it still. Well, at some point, we'll grab that yeah. as well. It comes from a, a, an outfit called Wild Press. We're doing brilliant things with rare varieties of apples, and we love that. A very basic question to start. And am I talking to Annie Mack, or am I talking to Annie McManus? You're talking to Annie McManus. It's my full name, Annie McManus, and it was always abbreviated for radio. And now, as a woman in her 40s, um, I don't know, I just feel a bit like I'm I'm over it, Jay, (laughs) ready to move on to my full name. (laughs) Obviously, I do research, and you know all about research, because I've listened to your podcast, and you clearly do the same. And I almost feel like I've got you at an interesting moment in your life, Mm. where you're on the cusp. You're about to publish your first novel, definitely under the name Annie McManus. It does not in any way refer to the thing perhaps for which people know you, which is club culture, music and so forth, and DJ. Is this an interesting moment in your life or am I just trying to put patterns onto the randomness? No, not at all. It is a moment of change. A lot of it is to do with turning 40. I just like 
really had this urge to learn and so wrote this book with no agenda, like not really an agenda to sell it or try and publish it, just to try and do something that I've always wanted to do. And then along the course of that, it was like, okay, we've got it published now. It didn't feel like the same person, as you say, that that persona that people know, which is raving, club culture, all Hands of that. In the air. Yeah, I just, I'm kind of a mother of two. And, you know, obviously I still love dance music. I still love DJing and all of the things that come with that. But there's definitely a change of priorities in the last couple of years that I didn't want to hide or ignore. I also wonder whether you're mm. entirely up for what's about to happen, which is you're normally on the other end of this. I'm very conscious yes. of this. But the process of what this means, being you being interviewed by someone like me, are you ready for this? I'm cool with talking. The bit that I feel really, really genuinely frightened of is going from being a curator of music to then being a creator. The general thing about my job is that people love music and you're playing music that makes them feel things. So they associate you with hopefully, you know, good feelings in general. And also they have a very trusting opinion of you, especially when when I've been on the radio for so long. When you're in people's houses and you're in their cars, they feel like they know you really well. So this is a whole different side of me that people don't know. And, and I guess I'm a bit worried about that. And I'm also a bit worried about getting shit reviews, which will inevitably happen. And, and I need to be able to know how to navigate them. When I handed in my first draft to this to my agent to send out to publishers, I had like unanimous rejections. I think there was something like 14 rejections for the book because no one could understand why the hell I'd written that book. We should get into it. Mother Mother is a novel and yeah. you yourself describe it in the ads you drop into your own podcast as a literary novel. Yeah. You're very clear about that. Mm -hmm. um, set in Belfast in the 90s and the present day. Mm-hmm. It is beautifully written, but a very serious book. It's kind of bleak. There's a dead mother, so it's called Mother Mother. Yeah. Um, that's not a spoiler because she's dead from the start. Mm -hmm. There's addiction. There's quasi-neglect. Yeah, there rough is. Rough fists, uh, yeah. father to son. What was it that <laughs> made you want to write that kind of book? I didn't set out to write any sort of book in particular. It started with a scene. And then it built up from there. And kind of a third of the way through the writing process, I read this book by Stephen Kinkle on writing, which really gave me confidence because that talked about how all of his books start with a scene. And that's what I did, literally. I started with this scene of TJ, the son, off his head, outside a club, hallucinating, but actually he's seeing, what well, in real life, the lights of a police car. From there, everything else kind of, kind of came. You have said that you thought you were going to be an actor. I really wanted to, to be an actress, properly. Just how bad was your audition at Trinity <laughs> College in Dublin? That's the university that they go to in normal people. It's like the, the, the biggest prestigious university in Ireland. And I'd never done acting classes. I'd never done anything like that. And then I had to do the soliloquy at the end of Romeo and Juliet, where Juliet wakes up and sees Romeo dead and then... And then, and then dies herself. And so I had to do that. But I just remember this big, long room with these two people at the end. It was so dark. They were nearly silhouettes. You couldn't really see them. And I just remember, I just froze, complete fell. I just remember going home to my mum and telling her I needed £10 and then going straight to the hairdresser and chopping all my hair off. It was down to my, my bum. And I chopped it all off to, to like a boy's, you know, well, like very short, you know, blade three or blade four. 
and brought it home to my mum in a plastic bag, my ponytail, and she cried. I mean, I was loving the drama, Jay. I, I, <laughs> I was going to say, as a dramatic response to failing an audition. <laughs> a drama queen. And then my mum actually suggested going to Queen's, which is where she went, which is a university in Belfast. You said that's where you got into club culture. Mm, definitely. Um, it was a nightclub called Shine. I started going there. Then I started working there and um, just fell in love with it. We were lucky because Shine was, you know, one of the best clubs in the whole of the island of Ireland and booked amazing DJs. So I got the best education in terms of how DJs work and, 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 and how you can move a dance floor. And it was there, working there, that I decided I wanted to try it myself. By the way, do you want to move on to your um, aubergine? Yeah. Thing? Yeah. Let's do it. I've got um, it here so in my this, yellow thing. Just so I've got the, the exact description. It's the crispy caramel aubergine, which is... It is um, melting in your mouth. I did have a piece, I have it to is. say. It's gorgeous. So I was the editor of a student newspaper in Leeds in 87 to 88. In other words, I covered... The Summer of Love. Did you get involved in The Summer of Love? Absolutely not. This is where it's quite funny. I had had a cataclysmic experience about two years before and my entire narcotic career had ended. Um, what happened? I took too many magic mushrooms and did my head in and that was it. Oh no, that's really unfortunate. I, it is unfortunate because my, my great regret, middle-aged man in his 50s says, great regret that I never did ecstasy. I never did. Jay, um, it's not too I'm late. Not- We're about to have another Summer of Love. <laughs> I'll take you out. Come on. Okay. Oh, can you see the Daily Mail headlines on this? <laughs> radio 1 DJ tries to take Radio 4 broadcaster. For his first E. <laughs> For his first E. <laughs> Club culture passed me by in every single way. So what did I miss? The Summer of Love was, was 10 years before me really, like, submerging myself in club culture. All I can tell you is that there's something primal about it. In the same way as if you were in the terraces of a football stadium and you feel the force of kind of collective joy or sadness, that kind of euphoria, you can feel a kind of wave and like an electric current of, of energy going through a crowd and you feel like you're part of something bigger. That's what clubbing is, but it, it's, it's in a much more small and intense environment. So it's kind of heightened for that. They're just being this kind of hypnotic kick drum that's just thumping all the way through. And the idea of a crowd experiencing that together, a good club will be a club that doesn't really can focus as much as it likes on decor, but the main aspect is the speakers and the main aspect is the idea of the music, feeling it not just in your ears, but actually physically in your chest. It's a total release, it's a total escape. It's losing yourself in music uh, in a very physiological way. It's meaningful. This whole idea of nightlife in London being compromised. There's places in the world like Amsterdam or Berlin who hold nightlife dear and hold nightlife like nightclubs in the same esteem as they would a Sadler's Wells or a, you know, Glindbourne or any of that. And, and those are the places that I feel like have really got it made because that club culture is that nightclubs good nightclubs with world-class djs are culturally as relevant as and as important as any of those other kind of higher institutions of culture you you have said that the club seems to be taken second place to the festival yeah obviously we're talking in pre-covid times yeah and you said something very interesting which is festivals are a hell of a lot more instagrammable than a club it's true yeah is there a real issue what festivals do, 
is they offer you a huge range of music and DJs and clubs. They offer you a mini holiday, even if it's an hour down the road camping, it's a holiday, it's an excursion. And it, it's also um, a, you know, not to be underestimated, very Instagrammable situation. So for, for a whole new generation of kids who live their lives through the lens of their phone and through social media, festivals, and I know because I, I, I have one and run one, they, they think of that. You know, you have to have, you have, to have uh, the name of your festival in huge letters in a field somewhere where you can take the picture with the, with the name of the festival behind you. It's that kind of stuff. If people want to look great and there's kind of a whole festival culture of what you wear and uh, what you bring. And, and so it's not just going to experience dance music. It's way wider and broader than that. You don't even have to like music. You can just go and run around a field with a can of cider with your friends and, and, and camp. It's, it, it's just bigger, it's, it's broader, and there's so many of them now, so many festivals, that people, I think, would rather spend 150 quid or 200 quid for a festival and save their money and not go to clubs. And, and, and the club culture that used to be so huge and prolific is dying for that, I think. Um, that coupled with gentrification and, you know, you have that classic problem with everyone wants to live in the trendy, culturally rich areas. Then they move in into these nice new build flats and they complain about the noise. Um, and then the flat that, you know, these clubs lose their license. So it's, it's the idea of having to preserve these kind of bohemian areas that cultivate culture without letting the money come in and compromise it. And that's still not really being done enough, I don't think. Were you going to clubs as a as a clubber before you were DJing? So I was, I was def- I spent those three years in Belfast, you know, doing it every weekend and um, not just at Shine, all over Belfast and then moved to London and was doing a lot of kind of random, not necessarily legal warehouse parties all over the gaff in East London and stuff, um, squat parties. Once I joined Radio 1 behind the scenes, I, I was really going to the, to the end and the quay and the cross and all the great clubs in London. I basically was DJing all that time to just privately. You know, I had decks in the living room and I just liked to collect records. But when I got my show on Radio 1, I was 26 years old. They knew I loved DJing and they took a total punt on me without being a name at all. I was the person who made tea for Stephen Mack. So how did, how did that happen? There's actually two things that happen and they're both kind of funny. One of them is one of the producers, um, the producer of the punk show at the time. She really liked the way I said punk in my Dublin accent. And she asked me to, she asked me to do jingles um, just for the show, just to record some jingles. So that was the first time my voice was on Radio 1 was recording jingles for the punk show. And then my fellow assistant producer, I was an assistant producer at the time, we were in a meeting with Steve Mack and my two producers and my other assistant producer. And he... There was a big screen on the on the wall and he had a keyboard and he just typed my name into Google in front of everyone just for a laugh and, and press return. And then it came up because I was doing lots of radio shows out of the BBC for this, uh, this thing called Student Broadcast Network. So I did a show called In Session with Annie McManus on that show. And I used to record bands, and, 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 and so all of these, these lists of radio shows came up with Annie McManus with this band and this band, and they were like, what is that? And I hadn't told them because I, I didn't want to be seen as the person who was trying to be a DJ. 
but it was all very apparent. And, and luckily, my producers were so supportive. And they, Hannah, this amazing woman, Hannah Brown, took me aside and said, do you want to, is this what you want to do? And I was like, yeah. And from that moment, she really helped me and kind of pushed me forward. You know, when DJs were sick and, you know, when they needed someone last minute, they'd use me. When was the first time you sat in? Well, I got the show when I was in July 2004. That was my first proper show. And it must have been earlier on that year I sat in for Marianne Hobbs on the Breeze Block. And I did that twice uh, before I got my own show. Um, and it was a Thursday night show. It was called The Mashup, lol. And um, it was just, at the time, quite quite unique because dance music was huge. You had Pete Tong who did house, you did Fabio and Groove Rider who did drum and bass, you did the dream, you had the dream team who did garage. Um, you, everyone had their genre and their box. Whereas what the mashup was, was trying to play everything and, 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 and allow people to like all types of dance music and have that in one show. Um, so that's what, that's what I was, that's what I did. How are you finding the aubergine? You seem to have stopped, I'm worried. No, 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 don't worry. I mean, it doesn't really feel like aubergine, does it? Does it taste like aubergine? You can do amazing things with aubergine. Yeah. This has been slightly battered as well before being yeah. swamped in a sweet, savoury sauce. It's God, absolutely God, I'm doing real gorgeous. food talk. Yeah, I know, I like it. Your DJing career on the side. Yeah. And I'm going to put it slightly in the past tense because I know you have. You have been huge. You were headlining Coachella and all of that. Well, headlining was a tent at Coachella, I have to say that, because headlining Let's Coachella just say is you Beyonce were headlining the, the biggest <laughs> festival in the whole of the world. I was headlining a very small tent called the Zuma tent, but it was still a big deal for me at the time, definitely. What, what is that life like? I'm really grateful that it only started happening for me in my late 20s. So grateful, the more I think about it and look back at it. I was a bit more sensible then, not loads, but definitely a bit more, because it is... A real roller coaster. I mean, first and foremost, it is tremendous fun. If you have no responsibilities and no people depending on you, it is so, so fun. I mean, you get to see the world. You you go to Mexico City for 24 hours to play a festival and then you come home again. It's. A, I mean, looking back at it now, the idea of the environmental damage is horrific. There was a lot of touring, a lot of traveling, a huge adventure. Um, I used to travel to America and just go on tour on my own and just like arrive in, random, arrive in Philadelphia and like hope the tour manager would show up and go and DJ and then go to Delaware and just, just do all this stuff on my own, which is looking back on it now, mad, but you, you kind of collect people in every city that you go to. So, you know, once you do it enough, you'll have people that you can call in LA or in Toronto that you know will come out for dinner with you and come to the club with with you and um it was it was hugely exhilarating for that and never stopped being exhilarating until I started to have children the DJ aspect was always the same but the traveling started to feel a bit like work around that time um well a couple of years after I had a kid I start I started doing the radio every night when I took over from Zane Lowe and that, um, that again changed everything because I, I had to really limit my DJ gigs then you've said you haven't seen much in the way of sexism in the world of club yeah. DJing. And in fact, I've said that actually it was a world in which women were pushed to the fore. What about from the audience? There was definitely at the start, like a row of, of boys just being like chin strokey and can she actually do this? And then that turned into lots of girls. And it was always notable that at my shows, it would always be the kind of front row was, especially in the UK, uh, was was women. There was a kind of curiosity from them as well, and 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 hopefully some sort of a 
positive reaction to seeing a woman up there doing that when it was so rare, still so rare in those days to, to see a woman. How is it now? Is it still rare or is it? No, it's getting much, much better, which is so encouraging. I mean, still at the top tiers, it's woeful. And that's across all genres of music in terms of popular music. It's absolutely woeful in terms of female headliners but and representation on, on festival lineups. But the bottom tiers, basically, there's a lot of women coming through now. And you can really see that reflected um, in, in clubs and at festivals. And it's wonderful to see, really exciting. You once said you're literally playing one record after another. It's not rocket science. Yeah. And and you've also said, I've, I've never been able to get my head around the blind adulation on just playing records. Well, I am. I don't want to belittle the culture of DJing. It's so rich and it's skilled and it takes skill to do it well. But there's an element at the top tier of DJing where DJs are allowed and encouraged to have obscenely big egos. You have this kind of constantly nomadic lifestyle where it never stops. And as you move up the, the, the tiers of DJing and, and start seeing money, what's interesting is there's not a lot of outgoings with DJs. So with a rock band, you have a whole, you know, you might have five people in the band and you have the tour managers and the lighting guys, all of that. With a DJ, it's just a DJ and a USB stick. Everything else is provided. I used to love it because I'd just come with my handbag. I'd come with a tour manager. And sometimes if it's a big show, you know, you'd have a visuals person. But that's kind of it. People are getting paid a lot of money, basically. My understanding is that Las Vegas is now a serious mecca for big, big name DJs. And they're Correct. getting paid enormous amounts. What sort of sums? I don't know. I, like, I couldn't tell you right now, but I know in the past there's things like, you know, $250,000 a show. And that could be, you know, for an hour and a half or two hours of playing music. Your travel will be paid and a lot of those DJs will travel in private jets and their hotels will be paid for. So everything's paid for on top of that. I did a series for Channel 4 called Superstar DJs with Annie Mack where I followed Tiesto and Diplo and uh, who else? Uh, a guy called Seth Troxler and just some very big name DJs at the time and just kind of in docu-style just kind of was part of their lives. And it was so fascinating, especially the Tiesto episode, because that is a man who, you know, has never had to really grow up because everywhere he goes, there's a different beautiful girl waiting for him at the airport and a different obscenely beautiful hotel suite waiting for him and a huge crowd of at least 10,000 people waiting to go crazy at him playing records. And, you know, he's earned that and he's worked his way up to that. And he's a very nice guy, so he's not emblematic of, of, of those people who have two big egos. I sometimes think that with those top tiers of DJs, there's an ego level where they are treated as demigods. And I don't think they maybe are. <laughs> Were there ever any moments where playing a large crowd, you, you started to think, oh God, I'm starting to I've become one of them. Of a, I'm becoming a bit of a, got a bit of a God complex going here. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure there's been moments in my career where I've been an absolute bell end, and, and like, and, and, and I've and I've and I've freaked out about stuff that's minor and small, and, and so I, it's interesting because I can see it from both sides. Did you ever have a rider? Oh God, yeah. What was on it? Neurofen Plus, Barocca, always a, a large bottle of very nice vodka, a couple of bottles of red wine, lots of beers, fruit, all that biz. For a while, I had a pig on it, which was kind of just a funny thing because I love pigs. I'm, I'm, I really like the animals. Uh, so I said, can I have some pig paraphernalia? Like thinking, oh, maybe like a key ring or 
a nice postcard yeah. or something. But one time in Portsmouth, someone put two live pigs in my dressing room, two piglets. And were you delighted or slightly bemused by the arrival of the piglets in your dressing room? Both, both delighted and bemused. <laughs> and I got a good, good stroke and I held them and it was very, very lovely. And then I sent them home with their owner because the bass was so loud that they were trembling from it. They were freaked out. It, it, you know? It's not going to help the pig. It's not going to be great for the pig. <laughs> One of the other things that's happened, the clubbers with their phones. Sure. You, you've given the impression that you see it as detrimental to the experience. It's that thing of living your life through the screen rather than mm. living your life. Is exactly. that seriously a problem? If you're experiencing anything with a screen in between you and that thing, it's not, it's not going to be as uh, effective. And it's the same. It's interesting, like, the, the kind of uh, f- physical manifestation of how it works. Like, back in the day... If there was a big moment in your set, you'd have all the hands in the air and people would be clapping and cheering and shouting. But now you just see the phone lights. So you know that something's going well when you just see loads of phones in the air. And what's interesting is afterwards, you look back at all these videos that people post. The sound is shit. You can't see anything. I'm this tiny dot in the distance. Why are you filming? Just like keep your phone in your pocket and feel it in your chest and enjoy it. And, you know, there's clubs like Berghain and a club now sadly closed, but a club called Output in New York where, you know, you wear, your phones were taken on, on the way in and, and not, not confiscated, but, you know, you, you, would put, you put them away like you put your coat away. That would be it. You know, they're not deemed a, a constructive thing in the room. I think that's a good point for me to send you off to put your cake in the I'm oven. Put, put the As they say, the that's oven. not a euphemism. <laughs> that is actually what you're going to do. So this is banana cake with a coconut miso cream yeah. and peanut brittle. Shall we have a go? That's all right now. I think we should. Mmm. Mmm. It's amazing. It's that good, is isn't it? Beautiful. Ravinda Bogle, we love you. So what kind of writing course did you do? I did a writing course that was one-on-one. It was um, called the Ink Academy. And it meant that I had to meet a teacher every three weeks and deliver 5,000 words to her. I just wanted guidance. She was absolutely brilliant in helping me kind of find the, the bits that really worked. So like I started, it started out being a book about TJ and it still is a book about TJ, but as I wrote more about his mum, she was the one who said, you write her better, you know, try and focus on her. So she became the kind of central character. So it's just stuff like that. Just having a second opinion was so, so useful. To explain, the book opens really with TJ's mum, Mary, being nine years old in yeah. Belfast yeah. and struggling through a, a, ne- a neglectful family experience without a dad and with a brother she loves. Um, did you change much in the process of coming to publication? Yes, and it, it took a whole year of honing and crafting and tweaking to make it into a book that, that, that it is now. And still, I want to go back and change more. I, like, I, I, I could keep working on this book for the rest of my life and never be finished. This is another thing I'm learning is how the hell you've just put a full stop on it and walk away. Uh, I think it was Iris Murdoch who once said that inside every novel is the wreck of a really good idea. Are you finding your way through to having a language to discuss this novel, this piece of you? I'm getting better at it, I think. Um, I had Zadie Smith on my own podcast and she talked about how when you write a book, it's gone. 
It's not yours anymore. And she was so casual about that. And I was like, how do you let it go when it's so, as you said, such a part of you, you know? Uh, You did also have another conversation in the Zadie Smith conversation on your podcast, Changes, uh, where she talked about how she loves reading people's first novels Mm. because she feels like she's in at the beginning of something. And uh, you then said, oh, I've just written mine. And she said, send it along. Did you no, ever send it along I, to Zadie Smith? I, I did not send it and I'm not going to send it and I'm going to refuse to allow her to read it if she ever even suggests such a thing because I don't want her to. I would, I'm too embarrassed. You can't stop anybody reading it. Well, I'll just I'll message her and say, <laughs> you are not allowed to read this book, the end. Or maybe I'll let her read my next one. But I'm, I come back to the question, Your Honour. <laughs> the process of publication and putting it out there presupposes that literally anybody from Salman Rushdie to Norman Cook could can now read your novel you're now rubbing the bridge of your nose um you know <laughs> oh my god Jay I, I it's going to serve me better to not think about who's reading it and just try and pretend no one's reading it <laughs> I think that's probably very wise yeah um, have you started another one yet I have and uh, I don't know if it's going to end up being a finished novel, but I'm really enjoying the process of it. Partly because it's so different from what Mother Mother was. It's very um, raucous and, and full of rock and roll and excess. And um, it's, it's more funny and humorous rather than kind of, um, I mean, there is humor in Mother Mother, but it's, it's more bleak than that. Annie, thank you so much for talking in detail and, and dealing with my, my many impertinent questions over over our lunch it was it was a proper this is your life jay it was like i feel like you've really there's been no stone left unturned so yeah thank you for having me but all that remains for me to say is uh, annie mcmanus thank you very much for staying well in for lunch for me on out to lunch and i wish you only good things with the book thank um, you so much jay. hell of an achievement thank you so much and thank you for this lovely lunch experience i'm going to box it up and bring it to work with me this evening so it's going to serve me all the way through my show too excellent that's what i like to hear (laughs) well that's the first time i've heard a source described as banging and i'm sure it won't be the last um annie was terrific company uh thank you to chef ravinda bogle and her team for their comfort and joy vegan food delivery you can find them at jaconi that's j-i-k-o-n-i london.com and her restaurant is based in marylebone and also to wild press for the fabulous apple juice it really is very very good you can find them at wildpressjuice.com um please as ever do remember to rate and comment on the show as it helps to spread the word which enables us to keep making more also if you follow us wherever you get your podcasts you will receive new episodes hot off the grill not bad eh out to lunch is a something else and jay rayner production the music was written arranged and performed by me jay rayner and robert rickenberg the recording and mix engineer was gulliver tickle jemima rathbone was assistant producer the producer is selena ream and the executive producer is darby doris additional production is from steve ackerman Next time, it's trying the BFG in Jurassic World actor, it's Rafe Spall. I was playing the lead part and Sophie Okonedo was in it too. We did the read-through, I stumbled through it, and then afterwards the director came and said, well, that didn't go well, did it? He said, what's the problem? I said, I fucking told you, I can't do this. (laughs) And he said, it's probably best you leave, isn't it? And I said, really? He said, yeah, I think it is. I said, but my bag's still in the other room with all the guys, (laughs) I've got to go and get it.